Well, I'm assuming by now you have all of your Christmas things packed away, neatly away. If you don't, it's not that you're lazy. It's just that you're festive. We'll just call it like that. That you like Christmas season and you'd like it to be all year round. So, but most of us have probably by now put away all the tinsel and the trees and all the trimmings that go with it. And we have moved on to the new year and exciting with that. But hopefully you got something for Christmas. One thing at least that you actually am gl- are glad that you have. You, you're, you're excited about that. It was something you wanted, something you wished for. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because some of you all are sitting next to somebody who got a gift for you. Uh, and if you didn't like it, then we don't want to call that out if you didn't get anything that, that you like. Maybe some of you all got something this, this year for Christmas that you did not like. Some of you all got something for Christmas that you were thinking, what were they thinking? When they got this for me. In fact, if you got one of those what you were thinking gifts, what were they thinking kind of gifts, would you raise your hand? Anybody? Yeah, okay, got one confession there. All right. What were they thinking when they got this gift for me? Now, there has been something that has been introduced to American culture, and as far as I, in all my research of being able to trace it back to its, the etymology of its, of its root, meaning and where it came from, the term regifting as far as back as I can go is Seinfeld. So I don't know if Seinfeld entered in, in that in, uh, into our culture or what, but now we have this new concept that we can re-gift the gift that we got that we didn't like that we got. And it can be that kind of thing that it's the gift that keeps on going and not just giving. You just kind of pass it right on. Now, I want to see a show of hands. Have you ever re-gifted? Raise your hand. Oh, yes, we are true in that fashion. Yes, there's nothing wrong with re-gifting, in my opinion. Obviously, I've done it, so I don't feel guilty about it. Uh, re-gifting is one of those things. Sometimes you're holding it in your hand, and you're thinking, what in the world were they thinking? What in the world am I going to do with this? And you're holding it in your hand, and you're thinking, how can I get rid of it? I can't throw it away. You know, it's not that bad, okay? I can't destroy it. I can't call it a, 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 a gag gift for next year's office party, but I've got to do something with this. What can I do with this? And sometimes I think we are holding in our hands our life, and we're asking ourselves maybe the same question. What am I going to do with this? I hold in my hands my life. I would like to re-gift it. I would like to do it. I can't throw it out. It's the only one I've got. But what am I going to do with this? I've got to do something with this. Now, again, you can then start breaking down your life and start thinking about some of the areas that you would like to re-gift of your life. Maybe your spouse. You would like to re-gift that one. Or you'd like to re-gift your children. Or you'd like to re-gift your job. Or you would like to re-gift something over here. But really, when it all sums up, it's your life and you're holding it in your hands and you're saying, Wow can't throw it away. Wish I could do things differently. Wish I could make make more of it. But it is what it is. What can I do with this that I hold in my hands? What can I do with my life? And so what happens every year after Christmas, we turn the calendar. And then we we thought, okay, I can't I can't re-gift my life. I can't give it away. I can't throw it away or I shouldn't throw it away. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to reinvent my life. And so we come up with this New Year's resolution idea. And I think it's a grand idea. I think it's great. Anytime you want, want to start something new, better your life, better the world, better humanity, go for it. 
You don't have to wait for the first of the year. But something about turning the calendar. It's like it just gives us this fresh breath of air that, that we can do something different in this new year. 90 million people, according to the Barna survey that just came out just this week, 90 million people will make a New Year's resolution this year. That's a lot of, that's a lot of commitments out there that will be made. Ideas, dreams, goals, aspirations of something grander and greater for their life. Maybe it's achieving something. Maybe it's losing something. Maybe it's any number of things that could be a part of that 90 million people who will make New Year's resolutions. And some of us have made them and have already broke them. Don't feel like a failure just because you broke it already. Get back on the horse and keep going again. But what is it about this? Something about this, we think, hopefully, I can reinvent my life and I can have a good life in 2011. This will be the year. This will be the life. This will be the time that it will be different. I will make a difference. And somehow we, we figure if I can make my life happy, then that's good. If I'm just happy in my marriage, happy in my home, happy in my job, if I can just find that, that momentary sensation of pleasure and happiness, then I've achieved it. Life is good. But I want to beg to say that life is good based on something so much deeper than that. So much more going the distance than that. So much more based on something that goes down not to, not to just the senses in your body, what you see, what you taste, what you hear, what you feel. No, 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 no. If that's all that you're measuring, the goodness of your life, you're only one bad sensation away from a bad life. A good life is more than some sensational pleasure along life's journey and trying to rack up as many good sensations as you can along the way. I want to challenge us to think of life at a much deeper level. I want us to think of life at a level that goes to the core, the soul, the, the very essence of who we are. That it's not that I, I'm a... I'm, I, that I have to have this happen and then I'll have a good life. That it's actually who I am and what happens inside of me that actually makes the good life. So therefore what happens on the outside of me is not dictating my life anymore, but actually what's dictating my life is what's going on the inside of me. The good life is not a sensational life sometimes. Sometimes it's actually quite boring. But it's what we do with the life that we have and what happens on the inside of the life, that we, who we are, that can be a beautiful thing. Be finding the book of Ephesians. Go in your Bibles and you'll find the, the New Testament. You'll find a bunch of red-letter books. Keep going to the right. You'll find a bunch of letters. You'll find Romans. You'll find First and Second Corinthians. You'll find then some prison letters. You'll not say prison letters on there, but these are letters that Paul wrote in about 60... A.D. and in this time period, he's writing while he's in jail. He's a, he's a felon, if you will, for being a Christian. It's kind of a very dark day to be a Christian, a very tough day, tough circumstances. But we come to this book of Ephesians, and, and we're going to be diving into the book of Ephesians now as we go on through this year. And I don't know how long I went into this week thinking it was going to be a 17-week series. I got into this message alone, and I'm going to have to now extend it one more week. 
because it's a two-part message. We're going to dive into the book of Ephesians, and we're going to go chapter by chapter, verse by verse. You're going to feel at times that this is a studious journey. You're going to feel at times maybe a little bit overwhelmed. I want to ask you today to please don't live the sensational good kind of life. I want us to put on our big boy pants and wade out a little bit deeper. I want to put on our big boy pants and go out into the deep waters because when you come to the book of Ephesians, you're coming to a very comprehensive book about the entire Christian faith wrapped up in six chapters. It is probably the most comprehensive of all of Paul's letters, maybe the most comprehensive book in the entire New Testament, that if you wanted to get everything from bumper to bumper, from beginning to end, from theology, doctrinal theology to practical theology, you're going to have it in the book of Ephesians. In fact, just going into the research, preparing for this series, several people were saying similar things. F.W. Farrer said it like this. He said the most that the Ephesians is he called it the most sublime, the most profound, the most advanced, and final utterance of Saint Paul's gospel to the Gentiles. That's a pretty high statement. W. Carver said it like this: the greatest piece of writing in all history. Scottish reformer John Knox used on his deathbed would ask that. Somebody bring the sermons of John Calvin from the, from the book of Ephesians and read him the sermons from the book of Ephesians. This is an amazing book. John Bunyan, actually a writer of the classic literature Pilgrim's Progress, received his inspiration for his famous allegory from this very letter. This letter, this book that we will dive into for the next 18 or more weeks with a few detours along the way, We're going to go on a journey verse by verse through this book, and I would hope that you would go through the deep waters with us. And the first three chapters are going to be deep. So you're going to put on your big boy pants, we're going to wait out. All right? And as we get out into this deep water, and as we get into this doctrinal issues, and as we unpack some of this, then please hang on, because this is foundational for your life. We're going to come out on the other side, and we're going to see how this deep doctrinal elements actually apply to your daily life. Because we're going to end up talking about marriage and parenting and and work. And we're going to end up talking about how to live your life and the value of the church and your role in the church. And basically how to live life and love life. And that's going to come out on the back and how to survive life. We're going to spend an entire chapter talking about how to avoid the satanic maneuvers and schemes of the devil. So there's going to be a whole lot of practical in the midst of the theology. But it's going to be one of those studies that we're going to need to dive into. So let's just begin reading in verse 1 and verse 2. Follow along as I read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Notice here that he's talking about what he is, not based on what he's called himself to be. He says, I am what I am by the will of God. This is not the only time Paul uses this statement. Paul uses this statement, and I think it ought to be apropos for all of us. That we can truly look at our life and say where we are, who we are, what we are becoming, is that I am what I am, I do what I do, because I know I'm in the will of God. And you look at your life right now, and measure it all out, lay it all out there, and say, I am what I am, I do what I do, because I am in the will of God. That's how Paul opens his letter. He's writing to who? The saints, the believers, who are in Ephesus. We're going to unpack a whole lot about Ephesus in the weeks ahead. 
Because it was a very, I would look at it as a first century, 21st century America. Very developed, very progressive, but very much lost in its own idolatries. And are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from our God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. You might underscore grace and peace. That's one of the most common greetings that Paul gives, grace and peace. I sign my letters many times, grace and peace. I think that's just a profound statement. Grace and peace. That's what I would wish for you. That's what Paul would wish for you, that you would know the grace and the peace of God. As you come to this passage, as you come to this book, just to kind of give a little bit more of, a, of an evaluation of the book or a value, assessment of the book, if you can place a value on it to say, hey, why should I hang out for the next 18 plus weeks and go through this study of Ephesians? Because I think as, as New Testament scholar Curtis Vaughn said, Ephesians has a wider outlook than any other epistle in the Bible. Another scholar said Fundam, that, that there wasn't any fundamental teaching that was omitted. One of the things you're going to understand about the book of Ephesians is it's comprehensive. It's comprehensive. It's going to be one of those things that it's going to cover the, the deep theology, but it's also going to cover the practical theology of our life. But it's also intensely practical. It's a very much of a how-to book. It's one of those that we're going to learn how to live and enjoy life and live life to the fullest. But we're going to have to wade through, again, some deep waters to get there. We come to this passage, and, we, and you look at it, and you just begin to, to read just a couple of verses, and you can already see some great truth there. But when you keep on reading, and you, and you find that where Paul goes after this in writing this letter, is he couldn't keep himself, it's almost like he couldn't contain himself, he just broke into worship. He starts writing this, this like 120, or excuse me, 200 word uh, sentence, one long run-on sentence in the, in, in the Greek language of, of, of word after word. And as he unpacks 202 words continuously of a praise, of a glorious praise to God. And as he writes this praise out to God, he has good reason for it. In fact, the, the title of this series, Life is Good, is based on chapter 1, verse 3. And in, in, in chapter 1, verse 3, this is what it says. This is, blessed be the God. Now, blessed be the God. Now, you might underscore the word blessed because you're going to see it two other times in this verse. It is going to be the launching pad in which Paul writes this letter. It says, blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, why, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He's blessed us. We've been blessed. He should be blessed. He starts with the idea that, hey, my life is good. My life is great. My life is way above where it should be. It's way off the chart. I've been blessed, he says there, with every spiritual blessing. Now, when you see a word once in Scripture, it's worthy of studying when you see it twice in Scripture. This is just a good rule of thumb for interpretation. It's worthy of really kind of taking a, a second glance at But when you see something three times in one verse, lean in. And when he says blessed, and then he says blessing, and then he says blessing again, he's trying to get something across to us. We have 
an obligation. We have a responsibility to bring worship to God, to bless God. Why? Because He's blessed us. Why? Because He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Now, what is the spiritual blessings out there? They are too numerous to count. There, there is no way that you could log or put into a ledger all the amount of ways in which God has blessed your life and my life. And what, what Paul does in this passage is he just begins to, to expound on that. What does it mean to bless God and why do we bless God? And actually this word blessing means to endow us with the ability to succeed. Now think about that. Put that at the end of that. Go back one verse. All right, go back one slide, guys. Oh, there it is. God, with every possible blessing, is the idea that God has poured into our life everything that we need, hang on to this, to succeed. Now this, I'm not Joel Olstein. okay, I'll promise you that. Or anybody like that, the blab it and grab it, name it and claim it people. But I can say this, based on Scripture, is that God has put everything into your life for you to succeed in your life when you live in accordance with His will. He starts with the fact that He is in God's will. He rests His life on the fact that when He does God's will, He has every spiritual blessing, every possible blessing that He needs in life to live out the life that God's called Him to live. So my question for all of us as we launch into this series, is your life good? Is it happy? I didn't ask that. Is it everything you want it to be? I didn't ask that. Do you get all of your Christmas gifts that you want? No, I didn't ask that. I said, is your life good? At the core of who you are. Does it just well up inside of you? that God, God I, couldn't have be, I couldn't be where I am. I couldn't have what I have. I couldn't see what I see. I couldn't experience what I have experienced. I couldn't be married to who am I married to. I couldn't have the children that I have. If it weren't for you, God, you have done such work in my life. I, I, I'm blown away. That's what Paul is expressing here. How do you see your life today? What does it mean to have a good life? If, if we go on into this passage, and we will, and again, we have to break it up into two weeks, but literally, if you were to look at it, from verse 3 to verse 14, you have one long, continuous sentence. Again, I have 202 words to be exact in the Greek. Just one long, continuous praise. But within that praise, that doxology to God, Paul tells the the church at Ephesus, he tells you and I why and how life is good and how life becomes great and grand and how does it happen. You know, this, this, this is not a formula. I'll tell you right now, this is not, okay, get out my pencil and paper because if I will do X, Y, and Z, then I will have the formula to have a good life. It's not a formula. I wish it was. If it was a formula, then we could package it up, sell it, and all be rich. If it was a formula, it's not a formula. I'll tell you right now, and this sounds so trite, but please hang with me on this, and I think you'll begin to see it over the next two weeks, is it's a relationship. It's not even religion. 
If, you, if you're here today and think, okay, I'm here, life is going to be good for me because I'm here, I, I'm, you're going to be sorely disappointed because here isn't the formula, isn't the religion for what it means to have a good life to the core. It's about a relationship. And so I, I want to give you two of five elements that, that Paul brings out in this passage of Scripture Two of five blessings that that God has poured into our life through Jesus Christ. And as He's poured this into our life, this is about the relationship that we're talking about. The very first thing is, just get this down, is that we were chosen by God. That's big. Okay? Now, I, I, don't, I don't know how you got here today. And I, and, I, and I know a lot of you come every week, so it's like clockwork for you. You didn't even think about where you were going to go. How you got here today, or the first time you came, or how, whatever your your reason, why why don't you stay in bed? It's awful cold out there. I mean, why? Why are you here? And I, and I want to propose to you: you're not here by accident. You did not get to 1201 McCollum by accident today. And you said, "No, the alarm went off. The kids were awake. We said, what else is there to do? Let's go to church.' You know, if that, if that was you, I, you know, okay. Then I don't know." Why are you here? I want to say that you didn't get here by accident, and neither will you ever enter into a relationship with God by accident. It wasn't that you woke up one day, you said, hey, you know what? I'm not God, and I've got to figure out who God is. I mean, that may have been a part of the process and the steps, and so I'm going to go to Grace Point Church and figure God out. Probably didn't happen like that. If it happened like that, that was only a step in, in, in the process of God wooing you to Himself, calling you to Himself. Chapter 1, verse 4 says it like this, Even as He chose us, underscore the word chose us, in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. He chose us. It starts with His choosing. It starts with His working. It starts with His wooing. It starts with Him initiating something in us. John chapter 6, verse 44 says, No one can come to Me unless the Father has sent, who sent Me draws Him. Notice that the initiator of any kind of a relationship is not that I wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to go meet God. The initiator of the relationship is God Almighty looking down through time because notice when He did this before the foundations of the earth. Before the earth was ever created. Now just imagine with me, God in all of all beyond space and time and limitations. Somehow, why in the world, I don't know. But He looked down through time, down through creation, down through history, down to... to to this day, and down to Mike McDaniel's life, and he said, I choose you. I choose you. And I go, why? Why do you choose me? And I tell you what, this is a, this is a, a passage of Scripture that it, you, it must be one that you meditate on. Because it, 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 there's a mystical element, there's a spiritual element, there's a sovereignty element that's involved here. And in fact, Paul uses the word mystery 
about three or four different times throughout the book of Ephesians because it's really, we're unpacking it now. We're, un, we're understanding it now. It's being revealed to us now. That, oh my gosh, God has been up to something for a long time here. In fact, even before time. That there's a sovereignty of God in this. That it's not I'm God and I, and I just can't quite handle it, so I need God to step into my life and help me out. I need the big man upstairs to help me out. It's realizing in the sovereignty of God, He planned for me to become His child. It was actually a part of something that He put into orchestration. Now, there's always been a tension between these two, between a free will of man. Hey, I chose to be here. I'll choose to follow Christ. And there's an element of that in Scripture. But then there's also the sovereignty of God that God looks through. He's way beyond time. He's way beyond limitations. We're small. We're minute. We're we're very limited. We're very linear. God is very holistic. God is beyond time. God's very huge. But somehow in that, in all of His sovereignty, and yet there's somehow there's a free will, but how can there be a free will if there's the sovereignty of God? And all that mixes in there. It creates an antinomy. Antinomy is one of those fancy words that just basically means it looks like there's two parent contradictions, but actually they're a whole. They're actually complete. They actually complete a thought. Some people would call it a paradox. Because see, at times in the Bible, the Bible speaks that God is wanting anybody to, uh, he's not wanting anybody to perish. It says that in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. But then there's other times that the Bible speaks that there are only a few who are chosen. In Matthew 22, verse 14, what is that about? Then you go to John chapter 6, 3, verse 16. It says the Bible speaks that God loves the world. And if anyone believes, they, they, they will be saved. And the Bible speaks that also that some people are chosen to be vessels of honor and some are chosen to be Vessels of dishonor in Romans 9. And the Bible speaks that a man having a choice to receive Christ in, in, in John chapter 1, verse 12. But then it also says, again, in, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, that, that, that it was already chosen, that we were already chosen by God. So what is this antinomy, this, this element? And I really believe that Paul is not writing confrontationally. He's writing actually very much an encouragement. The reality is, is that, well, just lean in here, please. Because you cannot come to the book of Ephesians and skip past this. Because he also uses a word like predestined. It's a predetermined work of God. What is it that God predetermined that He would do, and yet at the same time we have a free will to choose or not to choose? What is that? Listen, God is so far beyond us. I will not be able to to describe it to you today or answer it even in myself. These are apparent contradictions that there's the free will of man, but yet there's also the sovereign will of God. And how will those two ever fit together? I can't explain it, and I, and I will not be able to explain it this side of heaven. It'll be one of those things when we get to heaven, we'll say, oh God, that's what you were doing all along. It'll make sense then. But I can tell you this. I can tell you this with, I mean, well-intended, overzealous thinkers have, have debated this and divisions and denominations have, have risen out of this doctrine probably than anything else. I don't want to get hung up on the vastness of God's immensity. I want to get immersed in it. I want to see past all of the clutter and the questions and the unanswered questions that I'll tell you right now as a pastor... 
If you've come to me to be God's answer man, you have come to the wrong person. I am only a pilgrim on the same journey you're on. And as I am in the Word and I study and try to live according to it, that's the only thing I can base my life on. But I can base it on this, that if you're here today and you have inside of you your heart an inkling, a stirring, a wooing, a drawing, a hunger for God, He wants you. He wants you. Because He's somehow looked past time and past eternity. He's looked past it all and He's picked you out of the crowd. And He tells us this in John chapter 6, verse 37. Whoever comes to Me, I will not cast out. Whoever comes to Me, I will not cast out. You are a part of My plan. John chapter 6, verse 37. Have you ever been chosen by an untouchable? I mean, think about it. God, holy God, perfect God, way up there in earth and out of space, way beyond time and, and limitations. And He somehow looks down through time and, and, and all of this nasty mess of humanity and He says, Mike McDaniel, I choose you. Can you imagine the untouchable choosing a commoner? I was thinking about that this week and I remembered back in high school whenever I was uh, playing football and leaving two-a-day practices one day and I was I was I was back up and say this I was never voted by my student body class to be the best looking to be the most likely to succeed I was remedial at best in all my classes I was never voted uh, you know the the wittiest that was the closest thing I could possibly get to and I and I failed miserably with that I think about all those different games. Y'all remember those those things? And you you get elected by your student body, and you get your special page in the yearbook, and and it's just kind of like those those are the untouchables, the most likely to see all those categories of people. It's like wow, wow, you know those, those people, those are special people, the best looking, the best dressed. You have all those people in the yearbooks, and you know here I am back here, I'm in the back of the class. It was kind of like if you could have a caste system in high school, it was kind of like there was the commoners, then there, were, then there was the popular, and then there was the untouchables. And, you know, you could only hope that one day you might become popular and then it, that if, by God's grace, you might become an untouchable somehow in, in, in the mix. One day after two-a-day practices, a good friend of mine came up to me and said, you'll not believe this said, the girl that was voted by the school last year as the best looking girl in the school likes you. And the thing is, my friend was as shocked by that news as I was. Because he was after her. And he was at least above the commoner rank, okay? I was a commoner to popular, okay? But I was never in the untouchable rank. But he said, the prettiest girl in the school likes you. Now at this point I just left two a days in football and and I stink and I'm nasty. And by the way, she's in cheerleader and she's down there practicing right now. So what did I do? I got on my motorcycle and I rode home as fast as I could. I had to get out of there. Because I stunk, I looked horrible, I was nasty and filthy, and the prettiest girl, the untouchable, has chosen me out of the lineup. 
And so I go home and I shower and I put on my old spice and I get out my paisley shorts and, and I shake them off. I get out my best of my best uh, wardrobe and I get on my motorcycle and I go back up there so that I could meet the prettiest girl in the school who chose me. And I think about the feeling that I had and the butterflies that I had. But it does not even compare to the God of all gods. The Lord of all lords. Looking down through it all and picking me out and picking you out and saying, I choose you. I want you to be my child. I want you to be with me. I I don't care if you're nasty and dirty and filthy. I want you. But you know what I did? I I went home. I got clean. I wanted to be right. I wanted to be presentable to the untouchable. That's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be presentable to the untouchable. Notice why he calls us in in verse 4. He says, even... He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Why does God choose us? He chooses us to be holy. He chose you He chose me, rap sheet and all nastiness and all filth and all... I don't care how bad you've been. He's chose us all so that He could make us holy and blameless before Him. It's what He's called us to. It's the highest calling. It's His greatest nature. We are most like Him when we are holy. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 says, As He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Now, some people have confused holiness as as some kind of super spiritual, some kind of religiosity, as some kind of something far off. As you segregate yourself from the world, you isolate yourself from the world. I like what evangelist J. Wilbur Chapman said. He says, it's not the ship in the water, but the water in the ship that sinks it. So it is not the Christian in the world, but the world in the Christian that constitutes danger. Guys, we're, we're in a nasty, horrible environment of our own world and some of it we've made up our own self but the reality is that God has chosen us he's chosen us to be like him to be holy just as he is holy to be blameless I said Mike I'm not holy and I'm not blameless and you know what I'm in your camp but what he has chosen us is to make us that he wants to make us what he is and that's the beauty of a good life is I'm not the old life just with some sensational goodness along the way. I am a new life with a new destiny and a new future because I have been chosen by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I have a new life. That's what makes my life good. That's what makes your life good. But number two, blessing that we get in in this good life that we have is that we're adopted by God. We're adopted by God. It says in verse 5, it says, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of the glorious grace with which He has blessed us. There's that word again, blessed us. Underscore that. Us in the beloved. He has given us the good life. Again, He's given us the good life. How is that? 
because He's adopted us. You know, when you look in the Old Testament, you actually don't find the, the concept of God being Father very often. It's only a few times, 14 times total in 39 books of the Old Testament. But yet when you go to the New Testament, you'll find in the Gospels alone, four Gospels, the concept of God being referred to as Father 60 different times. What Jesus did is He introduced a a full disclosure of who God is. And He is not just the untouchable, holy God way out there. But He is a personal, loving God who wants to be your Father. See, God is transcendent. He is beyond space. and He is beyond our, our comprehension. He is the bigness of God. He's the God of earth and outer space. He's the God who made this world that we can't even touch. He's blameless. He's perfect. He's holy. But He's also... But He's also imminent. He's transcendent, but He's also imminent. He wants to be intimately involved in your life and my life. That's why in Romans 8, He says, You call me all but Father. You call me Daddy, Daddy, when you come to me. God chose us to be holy. But He adopted us to belong. He adopted us to belong. He wanted us to belong to something, listen, to something that would never die. There's nothing in this world that you and I hold in our hands or in our hearts or in our homes that will not die. But what God did when He chose you and me is He made us a part of something. It was His forever family that will never die. Even when Israel was living under Egyptian bondage, Hosea 11.1 says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. When we are in our desperate state of life that we live in, when we are trying to figure life out and trying to find the good life, that a marketing group of college kids came up with and has made it a a million-dollar business. Why is that? Because we love the theme. We love the idea. We love the concept of a good life. Well, let me tell you, we've only covered two of the things that make us the very core of good life. And it's the fact that God chose you. It's the fact that God adopted you. And He adopted me. That's a part of the good life. Story was told by a man who went to a little boy and he said, he asked him if he had ever found Jesus. The boy was stumped by the question. He said, I didn't know Jesus was lost. And then he said, I, what I can tell you is I was lost and Jesus found me. See, you say that's just semantics. No, it's not semantics. Because Jesus, before the earth ever hardened, knew you would exist. And knew in your existence that you would need Him. And looked past the filth and the nastiness of your own life. And what He did was He chose you. But He didn't just choose you. He didn't just choose you. To just be a part out there. Just to be aligned with the untouchable holy God way out there. No, no, no. He chose you. 
be His child and to come close to Him. To be in an intimate relationship with Him. You know, I told you about the, the, the Barner report that came out this week. It was interesting as you go on and think about the 90 million Americans that will make New Year's resolutions. and They even did a study in that same study. They revealed some things that, that asked the, who, made, who had made their uh, New Year's resolutions last year in 2010 and how many of those that made 2010 resolutions actually followed through with those resolutions. And actually uh, only 78% of the people who made New Year's resolutions in 2010 actually saw any significant, if any change at all. The 78% saw no change or only a minute change in their life from their 2010 resolutions. The sad part is, is it goes on to talk about how those who made their New Year's resolutions in 2011, only 9 out of one, more than 1,000 survey respondents. That's not quite 1% mentioned that one of their objectives for next year is to getting closer to God in some way. Only one excuse me, only nine out of a thousand said, it is my goal in 2011 to get closer to God. Now, I'll tell you from a very prejudiced point of view that if, that if we don't somehow in 2011 say, I'm tired of living from sensation to sensation, from empty dream to empty dream, and, 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 and goal to goal. I'm tired of it all. If we don't somehow realize the real value and the sustenance of my life is not in what I achieve and what touches my senses, but is what happens inside of me, we'll not know the good life. Because God chose you. Because God adopted you. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me? In this still moment of this moment, I would I would hope that you would just zero in on your own spirit right now. And I'm gonna pray, and you know what? We got front steps here that make beautiful altars. If any of you just need to come and bury your face and life in the altars and just say, God, I'm tired of seeking the sensations of this world to make a good life. I'm ready. I'm ready to be adopted by You. Lord, I feel like You have chosen me to be Your child. I can't distinguish from who God's chosen who God hasn't chosen, but I'll say this that if God is wooing you, He is drawing you, He is calling you, follow Him. Lord Jesus, we bow before You. We want to answer You with a resounding yes, Lord. Lord, would You speak to our hearts and make it clear that we are Yours and that You have chosen us. In Jesus' name.